Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I'm your host, Megan Reardon Jarvis, and I'm so excited to share this incredibly special episode with Rabbi Steve Leader that I recorded a couple of weeks ago. I'm doing this voiceover tonight, the evening where 18 young children lost their lives due to gun violence and their teacher as well. And boy, I wish I was having this conversation with Rabbi Steve all afresh and new. We cover all sorts of topics, COVID, religion, and traditions in grief and loss, changing the culture, Rabbi Steve's beautiful book, The Beauty of What Remains, as well as his new book, which is coming out shortly, For You When I'm Gone. For You When I'm Gone is actually almost like an add-on from The Beauty of What Remains. Gorgeous chapter in that book led to multiple conversations and more thought around the idea of legacy and became the book for you when I'm gone. We jump right in. We get talking like old friends, even though this is the first time we've met and because he feels like such a warm spiritual guide. I wish that I had his voice in my ear tonight to know what to do with all the heavy and hard feelings. I hope this conversation gives you something to listen to. And I think I can speak for Rabbi Steve and say, I hope it brings you some hope. I also want to say that we have some mic microphone quality problems towards the end of the conversation, which is why we seem to wrap up quickly. And I apologize for the quality. I do my own editing for the most part, and I couldn't figure out how to steady the sound. So I'm happy for anyone to send me DMs on how to clean it up. But for now, try to stick with it. It's really worth it to get every one of Rabbi Steve's words. For those of you who haven't ever heard of Rabbi Steve Le Leader before, let me give you just a quick bio so you'll know who this warm voice belongs to. After receiving his degree in writing and graduating cum laude from Northwestern University and time studying at Trinity College at Oxford University, Rabbi Leader received a master's degree in Hebrew letters in 1986 and rabbinical ordination in 87 from Hebrew Union College. He currently serves as the senior rabbi of the Wilshire Boulevard Temple, a prestigious synagogue in Los Angeles with two campuses and 2,400 families. Rabbi Leader is currently concluding his $225 million campaign to develop the congregation's historic urban campus, encompassing an entire city block. The campus is soon to include a new building by Pritzer Prize-winning architect Rem Kulas. Rabbi has written multiple books, and we're going to talk about two of them in the podcast. You may have also seen him on countless television programs or read articles that he's written in the New York Times, Town & Country, NPR, CBS This Morning, Let's go ahead and get started. Here's your introduction to Rabbi Steve Leader. We jump right in. Where are you? Where are you? I'm in Washington, D.C., uh -huh. where we are having a totally glorious, beautiful day and a uh -huh. giant uptick in COVID. I live in this little suburb just outside, and we are getting slammed. We um, are here also. It's, yeah. it's rising here, but, you know, I, I have kind of a different barometer than most yeah. people, which is how often am I going to the hospital to see people and how many funerals am I doing? And the yeah. answer is almost not at all. Yeah. So, you know, we, so that's, we've that's made a cool. lot of progress, right? You know, that's, that's important because you attend to the dying and the dead. And so your qualitative experience is actually an important data set. I work in trauma. So I work in DC. I have about 20 clients that I see a week, although that's shifting and changing right now, partly because of the wear and tear of the work. 
Mm-hmm. But but who I see are generally folks who have sort of high level, they're holding the world together sort of things. A lot of, a lot of catastrophic thinking. Yeah. Yeah, but but also parents, right? Also people, humans. And what what what's interesting, I mean, it again, it's my data set, is just this week I wrote three letters for FMLA, for that extended period of time. I normally write one of those a year. Yeah, no, no, there's no question that. So three in one week is, you know, yes, also Mercury is in retrograde, but I think we're having a little bit of that thing where, and you know, I try not to be on a soapbox and try not to lose my mind, but you know that when we're in the crisis, we can't feel all the feelings. Oh, it's PTSD, yeah. Right. And so now that people's lie, you know, they're being called back to the office and they're things are they're going to concerts and they're going to bat mitzvahs, things are sort of feeling normal. And then all the electricity of all that fear and all of that is coming back to us. Yeah. Yeah. And the daily news doesn't help. It does not have it does not know and and the political climate and you know, you can't get baby formula. You know, there's a there's a lot of a lot of work to be done around sort of sometimes keeping your eyes at your own feet. Yes. You know, there's this Buddhist saying that I love, which is tend the part of the garden you can reach. Isn't that great? I love that. So I used to work in preschool and I had a mentor. I was very young at the time. And she used to say, intentionally rotate your areas of neglect. (laughs) And I loved that. It was, you know, you can't, you can't can't do do music and. Yeah. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Massachusetts. And so I actually just went back to the farmhouse. So where I grew up was very rural when I was younger Mm -hmm. and I have five brothers and sisters and Uh, yeah. And grew up. I have four. I have four. (laughs) It's plenty, right? Yeah. yeah. (laughs) Plenty. And, and Irish Catholic outside of Boston. It wasn't until I went to therapy for a break (laughs) that the therapist, I remember at the end of the first session was like, listen, you know, obviously we're going to talk about all the sadness of all the things. And we'll talk about, you know, your family. And I was like, oh no, my whole childhood was idyllic. My family is perfect. So we don't need to talk about that. The way that I come into doing the podcast is, so my dad died five years ago of small cell cancer. He was 80 and he knew he was dying. We had a full year. He had an extraordinary life there was no shock to his death. There was sadness. Right, right, right. My mom died two years later when I was on vacation with her and my kids. She went to sleep and didn't wake up. The, the Beauty of What Remains, which is the book that I just, I have a dog-eared to embarrassing amounts. You start that book saying, I didn't, I, I attended to so many people's sorrow, but I didn't really know your book. And it just blew me away because I feel the absolute same. I want yeah. to apologize for people yes. who, you yeah. know, I, I yeah, just... listen, every journey's different, but in, but ours are very similar. And yeah. you know, when you have, when you think, you know, something as a professional and, and you do, I don't think I was doing a bad job of it or you were doing a bad job of it, but you know, there's a uh, one degree of depth that's impossible to achieve. It's like, I always, I always joke with people that I want to write a book called how to have your second child first. Right? <laughs> Which is, a great title. It's a hell of a title, right? Great title. But you can't write that book. Uh-uh. You have to live it. Yeah. I, I equate it as to like visiting Egypt. You know, you can't know what it's like to be in Egypt and stand in the sand in Egypt from a book or from someone describing it to you because it's a five senses experience. The thing that is universal about our grief experience is that we're all human and we have human bodies. And so just like we teach, you know, puberty to teenagers, even though everyone's experience is different, we have these things like brain fog and memory loss and lack of sleeping and not being able to eat or eat too much that people do that, at least in my experience, when they come in, they're like, I'm going crazy. This is happening to me. And I say, listen, I've been doing this for 20 years. You're not crazy. This is completely normal grief experience. And and it drives me bonkers that people can't know that, that we haven't taught. They, it does, by the way, I don't think it would matter if you did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I knew about anxiety. I've been, I mean, I, 
took psychology 101 in college, right. but I had no idea what it felt like. I couldn't from a I book. Know. I impossible. Know. You know, it's like, it's like swimming. I could show you movies and bring in experts and give you books about swimming and put you in the pool and you'll drown. Yeah. So, that's, <clears throat> you that's know. right. There's an educational component that, <laughs> that, that can matter. But yeah. it's not going to teach you how to do it because I think, and again, the beauty of what remains, I feel like I have parts of it memorized, but there's so much in there that really is just encouraging people that they're going to be able to get through it. Yes. Right. That this even might, though. Yeah. This might, yeah you know, the book I wrote before that, <clears throat> which you might not know about. I, I know about all of them, but I have not read all of them. So the book more beautiful than before, how suffering transforms us kind of it is that point that while this may be the worst thing that's happened to you yeah it's not the only terrible thing you've ever survived that's right and you know you still have those resources and that's that strength right. and yes i think some of it is simply about faith yeah you know, and i mean this not exclusively in a religious context but somehow faith that the laws of physics will reassert themselves in the world, that, that the bottom of the earth is not permanently gone, you know, yeah. that, 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 that life and nature and love and laughter, they do reassert themselves because that too, every bit as much as grief and trauma and sadness, that too is definitionally what it means to be human. That's right. We're, wi we're wired to live. And we're wired, we're actually wired to grieve. We're wired to thrive. We're wired to, you know, recover. Yeah, we and just don't realize it as much because modernity has insulated us, has insulated us from so much. You know, there's there's this famous saying, I don't remember who said it, that the the reason for the good old days is a faulty memory. <laughs> and you know, five hundred years ago the average European was 350 times more likely to be murdered than today. Yeah. 50% of children didn't make it to their fifth birthday. Yeah. A third of women died in childbirth. Yeah. There was no, you know, C-section with an epidural and crushed ice and a DVD or whatever. They're in, you know, Netflix. You die. Right. And we're and, insulated from all of that. And, and much of that happened in the home. Oh, that's right. And there was no van showing up 24-7 to whisk the body away in a bag. And you don't see the body again until it's prettified with makeup and a suit and a dress or whatever. So, you know, it's it, in a way we're wired for it, but we don't have the consistent experience yeah. any longer. You know, even I, who had seen so much death up close had never had the the death of someone with whom I had an intimate relationship happen to me before. And and I was in the death business. <laughs> you know? Your, death was your job. Yeah, that was, yes. And, you know, like it's your side hustle, right? I love, by the way, the name of your <laughs> Thank you. It's become my full hustle. I mean, I'm not yeah, going right. to lie. Well, I that's what happens. Well, it's uh, certainly what's happened in COVID. I mean, I'm really grateful that people are interested in talking about the conversation more broadly now than ever before. And I'm really sorry also that that- Less so. I will yeah. tell you what I'm seeing in the media now is, oh, you know, Rabbi, we don't, we don't want to talk about death anymore. Yeah. We're, we don't want to talk about COVID anymore. We don't want to talk about death anymore. We want to talk about, you know, all inclusive, all inclusive resorts yeah. and Johnny Depp and, you know, the gala at the Met. I know. And, and so, you know, and media is sort of a canary in the coal mine, you know, in terms of where people's minds are going. And so, you know, I often say, if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty handed. And I hope as a society, we don't come out of this empty handed, that we really do, you know, use what we've learned through the pandemic to ennoble our lives. But we'll see. What would you say from the, from, from the place that you come into the grief and loss world in terms of 
the takeaways of COVID. What are you finding that people are, I'm always interested, like, is it better if you have a faith base? Is it more directive? Do you have a handhold? You know, I have people that come in sort of more widely, but I'm, you know, I'm in DC, like there are very faithful people here. I think they are probably seeking out their pastors and their, you know, rabbis in those moments. But I'm curious from your perspective, like, what are you seeing? Well, when the pandemic hit, the very first thing I did, you know, when we went into lockdown in Los Angeles, and there was a lot of fear in the air. Yeah. And, and the first thing I did was I got our media people to come to my house and we did a video. I taped a video for the congregation. And what did I talk about? Mm-hmm. I talked about a thousand year old Jewish prayer that talks about the, the uncertainties of life. It's called the Unatanatokif prayer, and it, mm. I'm going to paraphrase it for you. We say it during the High Holy Days, and the, it asks a series of questions. Who by water? Who by fire? Who by stoning? Who by uh, disease? Who by plague? In other words, in the coming year, we have no idea what our destiny will be. Sure. Because you know a moment ago we were talking about the omnipresence of death in ancient society and how we're insulated from it well for our ancestors yours and mine the idea of dying in a plague was an everyday occurrence they had no reason not to believe that's right they would die in a in a plague or a fire or a mugging or a murder or just giving birth or just being born yeah. And so what I talked to people about was we, we have been here before. We're part of a tradition that teaches us how to live during times like this. Because how does the prayer end? The prayer ends by saying, but, so it lists all these ways that terrible things could happen to us. And then it says, but, repentance, prayer, and generosity temper the harshness of the decree in other words it doesn't change the decree god that's gorgeous it doesn't change what happens to us we can't control that however if we are engaged in leading a repentant what does that mean a a life in which we nurture and tend to our relationships right right our relationships are healthy number one number two prayer a a mindful life a prayerful life a spiritual life a life in which we take no small blessing for granted because no blessing is small you know a life in which we count our blessings and finally a life of generosity a life of reaching out if we lead that kind of a life it's not that it will change what happens to us. It'll enable us to endure what happens to us in a, in a, in a very powerful and in its own way, beautiful way. That, oh. Right. And so, and this is a thousand years of wisdom. Yeah. This is the distillate of a thousand years of wisdom. So does being part of a faith community help us in that way? It certainly helped me in my community, yeah. you know, because also certain faith traditions, many are <clears throat> many faiths, many religions are more about creed than deed, yeah. Yeah. right? But they all have some degree of deed, some some prescribed set of behaviors to help organize our lives in the midst of chaos. Yeah. Right. And so. <clears throat> When you have a way to organize chaos, it becomes more bearable. And when you have a a context in which to put these things, you know, look, I, Mm -hmm. I remember in college reading a book about how religious Jews fared better emotionally during the Holocaust than secular Jews. Why? Because it was, first of all, their lives were structured, even in the chaos, and 
because they were in touch with their history, they weren't as shocked as the acculturated when it came to acts of cruelty toward them because of their faith. They knew, for example, that the Babylonians in, in 586 BCE threw Jewish babies off of cliffs. Now, that's not a pleasant thing to be aware of, but it's, certainly, it, it's history and it certainly made their current circumstance less shocking. Yeah. And so this is true, I think, of all faith traditions that they helped structure chaos and they help they help us realize that whether personally or as part of a community or a tradition wherever we are we have been there before right and that's why i think you know this phrase this phrase from from the bible renew our days as of old i think that's what it's saying renew our days as of old so for example i'll give you a very simple story there's a story about a man who was walking from Jerusalem to the Galilee. And he came to a crossroads. And the sign pointing in the proper direction of the Galilee, it had fallen on the ground. And so what he did was he picked up the sign. He knew where he had come from, the direction he had come from, which was Jerusalem. Right. So he put the sign back with the arrow pointing in the right direction to Jerusalem, where he had come from. And then he knew where he was going. <laughs> okay. So I think this is very helpful um, that we, we remind ourselves, you know, this, and this gets back to our conversation about grief. We remind ourselves, maybe this is the worst or most difficult thing that we've ever been through, but where have we been in the past and how can we marshal those resources? And, and again, if we lead a certain kind of life, sure, we'll suffer, but we won't suffer alone. Alone. And, you know, I have found you will probably, you know, back this up in your own work. No one, no one endures pain better alone. Yeah, that's 100% right. And that's why you do the work you do and I do the work I do. You know, the, the Talmud says the prisoner cannot free himself. That's right. Wow. So the humility of grief is that it, it forces us to our knees. It forces us to reach out. And in that outreach, we often find someone's hand reaching back to help lift us from our suffering. And that's the beautiful part of the darkness. I think, I think that is it, right where you landed partners so beautifully, like with the neuroscience and the, and the trauma learning that I've spent two decades doing, because when you are already in community, you yeah. do better when hard things happen, yeah. right? Yeah. So, so whether the legacy and the thread is an ancient community with religious tradition that has, you know, been through thousands of years of hardship, there, there is. I mean, there's I don't care if it's your soccer team right. or your or your, you know, poker buddies right. or your lunch group or your mahjong group. I don't care what the community is. If you are in community. Yeah. And you're with a bunch of people, not only who care about you, but whom you have cared for. That's right. You're going, you're going to ride these waves out. And by the way, here's the really cool thing, I think. Let's talk for a moment about the difference between happiness and joy. Mm. Okay. And I can talk to you about this from a religious perspective, but we all will understand it anyway. Just like in English, there are two different words, happiness and joy in the, Hebrew, in the Hebrew Bible. They're not the same word because they're not the same thing. Okay? Right. So happiness is, is a fleeting temporary moment like, and can be experienced alone, like eating ice cream or, you know, I won the lottery, you know, and I didn't even buy a ticket, whatever, yeah. right? We can be happy alone, but there's a, a, a much deeper level we call joy 
that is the fruit of a very slow growing tree mm. that takes months, years, even decades sometimes to bear fruit and can only be experienced in community. Mm. And I'll, I'll, I'll tell you when I first realized this. I, I was a pretty young rabbi and there was this young couple that wanted to have a surprise wedding for just their immediate family and a few close friends. So what they did was they uh, invited everyone over for a party and I was supposedly just one of the guests. Mm -hmm. And then the, the soon to be groom quieted the room down and said, listen, I know you all think we invited you here to announce that we are getting engaged, but we're not getting engaged. And you could feel the air just come out of the room, just yeah. it deflated everything. And this yeah. guy, this guy's a Hollywood agent. So he's a great storyteller, right? And he says, I'm sorry to tell you, we are not getting engaged today. And he waited. And then he said, we're getting married and here's the rabbi. And then we open the closet. Oh man! There were six tuxedos hanging in the closet, and there and there was a wedding canopy, and uh, I put my rabbi uniform, and the 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 pants were too long, so I got a staple <laughs> from the desk, and I stapled up everybody's pants, and we had ourselves a wedding. Oh man! When he said we're getting married right now, and here's the rabbi, I watched his father literally jump for joy. A grown man jumping up and down, clapping, crying, jumping for joy. And then I, I asked myself, well, that's such a rare thing to see. And the reason is because that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of feeling and fulfillment and joy. Why did he feel that? That was the result of three decades yeah. of the worry of parenting, of yeah. the hard work of parenting of the anxiety of parenting, of the sacrifice of parenting. So that's a whole different level, right? And the word sacrifice, I also think is extremely important. You know, mm -hmm. we, we tend to think of sacrifice as a net loss, right? She made so many sacrifices or he paid the ultimate sacrifice, right? We tend to think of it as a net loss. Well, let's do an experiment and I will prove you otherwise. Okay. So Megan, tell me this. Yeah. Who or what are the two things that mean the most to you in your whole life? Well, I have three kids. So okay. So your kids, let's just say your family is number one. What's number two? I think for me personally, probably also my ability to help. Okay. Your work. Your yeah. ability to help. My, my, my actions that are of service to right. others. Which you said not too long ago, create, as you put it, the wear and tear of the work. Absolutely. Now, so these are the two things that matter the most to you in your whole life, your family yeah. and your work. Yeah. Now, what are the two things you have sacrificed the most for in your whole life? The same. Right. 100%. So what do we find? What do we discover here? That despite the common understanding of sacrifice as a net loss, we're actually closest to the things and people we sacrifice the most for, right? And so this becomes a new way of understanding how we achieve joy and fulfillment. We achieve joy and fulfillment through the beauty and the power of sacrifice, not the opposite. Happiness is more of a hedonistic kind of thing. Joy comes from, from real commitment and giving and sacrifice. This conversation is such a gift to me and I can't keep up with all of the thoughts in my mind. What I want to say is that you are saying in a global way, rooted in history, rooted in religious tradition, the same thing that I have been saying in individual conversations or conversations with leadership of companies and am asked about regularly, which is about 
making meaning in grief. I have chills just as I'm saying this. It's a very frustrating thing for a fresh griever to hear that they are somehow supposed to make meaning of a trauma that has happened to them. And I feel like we got to keep the words off the table while the people are regulating the world back onto their axis. However, when we have connection to other people, we can, those are handrails, communities and people remind us, right? They remind us in a bioscience way, you're nodding at me while I'm talking. Therefore, I know I make sense. I mean, it's that simple. And you're echoing into what we read in Oprah magazine, that stuff that seems too simplistic, but actually at its root is, is right, which is when you go back and ask, what are the things that are important to me? What are the things that are critical? What are the things that matter? And you have the integrity to attend to those things. That is the meaning. That is the meaning, whether you're grieving or whether you're living. And, and I think most of us in the field will tell you when you have profound grief, it is yours forever and ever. You'll do it forever and ever. You grieve and you live and you integrate. And it's worth it. And it's worth it. So exactly the thing that you said, which is about sacrifice, what it made me think of is my youngest son has non-serious health issues, but it took us a minute to understand whether or not they were serious. And I worked in an emergency room. I have a little bit of a medical background and we had a moment that was scary. Some tests had been run that I understood would, would tell us whether or not he had leukemia. He does not have leukemia, but we lived this minute, right? We lived this parental minute where I was pretty sure we were in the before and that there was going to be an after. And that after was going to be much less than the before that we were living in, in that moment. And the terror of that was where I called my mother. She was the first call and she held the terror with me. She was as terrified, if not more. But she showed up. And that allowed me to lesson and feel seen and validated. And it didn't have to be my mother. And since my mother has died, I'm trying to learn how, who and how to validate those things. And it doesn't take much, Megan. You know, the Navajo have this beautiful mourning custom that when someone in the village dies, you go to the mourner's home you walk in, you sit down, Mm. you stay a while, and then you leave. Mm. You say nothing. Like Shiva. Yes, you're just there. You're just Just show up. It's the holding space. It's the holding space, that's right. That's right, and you know, you asked me about what are these sort of long-term lessons from COVID that we could put in a secular or religious context. Yeah. And I think showing up is one of them. Yeah. And also being authentic when you show up. I think that COVID has, partly because we're zooming into each other's homes now. Yeah. And at some point we stopped putting on shirts with collars. (laughs) That's right. We didn't care if our roots were gray. Right. And we didn't care if we were in our pajamas or there was a stack of books on the chair. At some point we just showed up as we are. We showed up with authenticity, not kabuki. That's right. And that I hope is a lesson that will remain for all of us in COVID. I'm certainly trying to hold on to it. And the other thing is, there, there are many, but two others I would like to mention. I think what COVID really did was it pierced our global sense of invulnerability. Yeah. It revealed to all of us just how vulnerable we really are. That's right. And with that vulnerability comes need and opportunity for gratitude every day. And and a compassion for others who are also feeling vulnerable. And finally, and this is one of those things like Oprah Magazine that's so simple that it's easy to dismiss, but it is so profound and true. You know, my mom is 88 years old Mm. and uh, she lives where I grew up in Minnesota. 
in an assisted living place and and they wouldn't allow visitors you know for almost almost two years so and my mom's not great with technology so i really didn't see my mom for more than two years on the screen even right and when i was able to travel again and go back to minneapolis And it was, we surprised my mom and she opened the door. I, I realized in such a profound way that no matter how many times we say, I love you. And no matter how many times we hold and are held by the people we love, it's never enough. It's never enough. We need more of that. I don't know about you, Megan, but I, as during, and as a result of, the pandemic, I have found myself saying, I love you to people. Oh, yeah. Such great ease. I, I don't think I was a withholding person before, but I'm, I say to my friends after a phone call or a, we, we meet for a drink at the bar or whatever, I, I love you. I love you. I really love you. I'm saying it so effusively and sincerely and feeling it and feeling it and letting yourself feel it this is such a powerful result of covid and result of that fear you went through for that moment with your son and and reaching out to your mom and you know i really hope we don't return to our default settings of invulnerability and of uh, withholding our expressions, both physical and verbal of love. I I hope this part never leaves us. What I was thinking when you were talking was how you are describing this in in a really positive, open-hearted way and how I often focus too much on the cynical side, right? Like you're describing getting through and the lesson of COVID being, I need to tell the people that I love them. I need to feel that. And by the way, I spent a lot of time on TikTok watching those videos of people reuniting with their relatives or the military. Yeah, we all so like, you know, it's my little drug, my little like yeah. empty drug. So I appreciate that story. It already got me teary. I, I, what I, what I, what I sometimes focus on is like, and just forgive me because I can't think of a better word. is like some of the bullshit, right? Some of the, And when I, after my mom died, I had no hard candy shell. So I couldn't any of the bullshit, I would just get up and walk away from things. And so when I, you know, I just, people would talk to me and I'd be like, no, I'm not doing that. Like almost the social graces were gone. (laughs) This too is a very beautiful result of COVID. Why? Yeah. Because it stripped away a lot of nonsense. Nonsense, garbage, insanity. I don't want to have lunch with these people anymore. I don't want to get in my car and drive for 45 minutes to go talk to someone. They can Zoom with me. I don't don't want to wear uncomfortable clothes and suits and tops anymore. You know, there's a chapter in The Beauty of What Remains, you know this, called Nobody Wants Your Crap. (laughs) So good. I have a different relationship with money now. Yeah. I want to spend it on experiences. I want to spend it on the little cabin we're renovating in the middle of the desert in Joshua Tree Uh, in the Mojave Desert. I don't want more crap in my house. I want less, right? And and so I think that even what you're describing, this essentialism, is a life-affirming point of view. You know, to be just connected to death again, I'm always struck by something. I obviously spend a lot of time in cemeteries. And despite the fact that we all lead, we're all unique individuals and we have unique lives, all of us. That's right. But I'm always struck when I'm in the cemetery by the almost total uniformity of the inscriptions on headstones. Yeah, they were loud. They all say the same thing, pretty much. I mean, there are outliers, yes. Some are really funny, but generally speaking, 95% or more all say the same thing because when you have to distill what matters in a person's life and legacy down to 15 characters per line and four lines total, 
you're doing what COVID did. You're stripping away all the bullshit. That's so right. what do they all say? Loving wife, Love. mother, grandmother, friend, right? Loving husband, father, grandfather, friend, brother, sister, right? Not your net worth, not your zip code, not your kid's GPA or where they went to college, you know, not what kind of jewelry you own, not what kind of vacations you took. It comes down to that small handful, and none of us have more than a small handful, of people, of relationships that really matter, right? Yes. Now, I think COVID, can I get a little, I'm going to get a little wonky, a little like. Yeah, I'm ready. Okay, I'm going to get a little egg-heady with you for a second. It. So there's a school of theology called negative theology. In Latin, it's via negationis, by way of the negative. Okay. What does this mean? In theological terms, it means we can understand what God is by seeking to understand what God is not. Mm -hmm. Via negationis, by, by taking away. Because when you take something away, it leaves behind something. Thing, it reveals something else, right? The easiest way to think about this is like a marble statue. Okay? Yeah. Now, <clears throat> that marble statue began as a block of marble. And that beauty was always within it. Yeah. But it took a skilled sculptor no, it to didn't. remove chip by chip by chip everything around it that wasn't beautiful. Mm. And it leaves behind... This is part of the reason I called my book the beauty of what remains, what remains, right? Because COVID death loss is the removing. It's the chipping away. It's the stripping away, but it does leave something profoundly beautiful in what remains. If we treat our lives and experiences like that artist, if we understand loss, like true. the artist understands the removing and we create therefore by almost ceasing to create by removing from our lives and i think this is a very profound secular but spiritual idea it's gorgeous and what it's making me think of is you know the clients that i worked with who really were struggling and, and, you know, maybe traditional therapy says like, well, what would make you happy or what do you want to do? And for many of us, my little qualitative research is going to say, particularly for women, that question is an impossibility to answer. You know, you just said on those headstones, those headstones are giving you a definition of the person in relation to other people. That's right. And so what has been such a challenge during COVID is people are we are culling down because we don't have the energy and it's not safe. It right. hasn't been safe to stay connected, but also what do I want to do with my time? How do I want to feel? And what do I want to stop doing? Right. What do I want to stop doing? Often people can answer that. I have menus in my office that particularly with grieving, I'll say what, you know, instinctively, what does your body want to do? Right. How do you want to mourn other than, and, and very often, depending on the person's trauma, they will have zero answer to that question. But they know other they're than, exhausted. They know they're other than sleeping other. And I will say, well, let me show you a menu because we haven't been taught even what grief looks like. So let me just show you a menu. Here are things that people have said they have done with their energy in grief, gardening, cooking, reading, screaming, yelling, ice skating, exercise and sleeping, writing. I run a free grief writing workshop because that was the one that sort of came out of grief for me. But I love this idea. I, I was in Paris recently at the Rodin Museum and I, mm -hmm. I, what I kept wanting to have answered was, did he know what he was sculpting exactly when he started? Or was it, as you just described, he was revealing from the rock well, what the rock wanted to be that it didn't know. Writer. 
all art is like, you're a writer, you yeah, know. That, well, that's certainly for me. I, I'm writing a novel also right now. And I will turn to my husband and say, oh my God, I had no idea this was going to happen. Right. And, and, you know, unlike a sculptor or a painter, my wife is a painter. They start with something. That's right. right. That's right. Writing, you literally start page. with. Nothing. Well, you know, I will also say, and, and, and this is a little bit woo woo. And I, I do, I'm, I want to be respectful of our time and ask you the thousands of questions I still have to ask, yeah. but, but I wake up at three 30 in the morning with sentences in my head that I did not construct. Right. And I will often go back <clears throat> and read something. I mean, I have a whole start to a book where I went back and looked at it and was like, I don't remember really writing any of this. Someone asked me in a writer's workshop, they were, it was so extraordinary for me being a new writer. They were like, oh, well, we like your technique here. How did you decide on this military phrase? And I was like, oh no, I woke up at 3.30 in the morning with that entire yeah. sentence in and, my head. And of course, what is, what is the great the real differentiator for for a writer from first draft to final product, usually it's what you take out. Take away, it's the editing. And I love editing because- It's what that I old joke, uh, that old joke, journalist joke, where the reporter hands her story into her editor and says, sorry, I didn't have time to make it shorter. Right. <laughs> But I, but I love editing because I think editing is very similar to therapy, which is I come in with all of my words and you pull out, you know, several dozen and I make more sense to myself and maybe even to the rest of the world of with the sort of clearer string yeah. of, can you tolerate me reading a piece from sure. um, oh, the beauty of what remains? And then I really want to talk about because I know a little bit about it, but I really want to talk about how this book sort of begets your next book, which is just about to come out. So I want to read this and I'm going to try not to cry when I read this, because every time I read this section, it just slays me. This is on page hundred for anyone who has the book. I have learned from my own father's death that often the things we miss the most are seemingly small and insignificant, yet so emblematic of who that person was and always will be within us. When I'm eating something delicious, when I'm wiping my plate clean with a crust of bread, when I learn a new joke, I know he would have loved, but can't call him to make him laugh. When the lilacs bloom on his birthday each May, when I raided the neighbor's lemon tree during the COVID-19 crisis because the grocery store ran out, when I'm listening to someone arrogant tell me what he thinks, I can hear my father saying in Yiddish, is it chukim? I don't want to say it wrong. Uh, it's it's chacham, which means like, yeah, wise guy. Wise yeah. guy yeah. with a knowing wink. When I'm walking in the sun, no one else has ever loved the sunshine more than my dad. These are the moments when I miss my dad the most. Finally, I ask what I think is the most powerful of all questions because it gives voice back to the deceased, allowing him or her to complete the story. I've always believed in giving the last word to the dead. Let's assume for a moment that he was here with us during this entire conversation. In a way he has been here because we brought him to life with stories. And I mean this literally, let's assume he's hiding over there underneath the desk, listening to our entire conversation. When we finish, you leave. Dad steps out from under the desks and says, Rabbi, I heard what everyone had to say about me and I don't dispute a single word of it. It was all true. But this is what I want you to say tomorrow to my family and my friends and their friends who will be at the funeral. I mean, this is, first of all, it's the truthiest truth of grief, which is we miss our people in the five senses experience of being connected to them. I get texts every day. Oh my God, I smelled Lily of the Valley. Lily of the Valley is something that's blooming here and it's really evocative of people's grandmothers. Oh my God, I saw this movie. I heard this song. And what happens for me, the reason this passage chokes me up so much is that I miss my mother and my father when something that they would have enjoyed is not there for them to enjoy. An opera comes out. There was a great tennis match. With my mother, it's something funny. My mother had an unbelievable sense of humor. And when I come across something particularly funny on the internet, I can't believe 
that she doesn't get to see it. So that passage, you just encapsulate it. And then you bring us to this next piece about legacy, which is we all know what our person's legacy is for us already. We already know it. We, it's already defined. We could write it. And I, I would love for you to talk a little bit about that concept because I know it's important to you and it's infused in the book. And I do think it takes us back to where the chaos about grief and loss and maybe even things like COVID, we can cull it down a little bit into the handrail of, I understand what this means and has meant to me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, two things come to mind. First, the words of the poet Tagore, they peer through our eyes. So I would say to you as my new friend who clearly misses her mom. I do. And particularly in these small, tiny, beautiful moments, allow her to peer through your eyes. Mm. See it, see it for her. Taste it for her. Yeah. Laugh. Let her laugh through you. Yeah. And let it inspire you. And this really leads to why I wrote the new book that's coming out on June 7th. This leads to hopefully your own very deliberate life. Yeah. Created in order for you to live true to your truest values and to leave that non-material legacy, to bequeath that to your three children yeah, for when you are gone. So this book is called For You When I Am Gone. Yeah. And everyone, you know, thinks, oh, this is the death guy and this is another book about death, but it's not. No. It is really a book about the great American reevaluation post-pandemic. Yeah. Which... I'm going to paraphrase the great reevaluation. It goes something like this. Am I really living the life I say I believe in? Yeah. I, am I really living the life I want? Or are my professed values and lived values misaligned? Yeah. So the book asks the reader to ask of themselves 12 questions. Okay. Now, where do I get these 12 questions from? And why in this, why in the particular order in which they're asked? My editor said, how did you come up with these questions in this order? I said, it took me 35 years and 15 minutes. Yeah. Because these are the questions, Megan, I ask when I sit with a family in what clergy call an intake. Yeah to enable them to tell me and each other the story of their loved one who has died so that I can get my arms around the truth of this person's life to write a eulogy. Yeah. And not the facts of a person's life. You know, an obituary tells you the facts of a person's life. Yeah. To which I say, so what? Yeah, so yeah. what? I was born on June 3rd, 1960. So what? That's a fact. Doesn't tell you any of my truths. Who, so, how you lived and where the heart of the integrity of your exactly. human experiences. So these questions are questions I have developed over the years to get to the truth of a person's life story. So I invite, I ask the questions, I answer them. And then I invited about 40 other people, all kinds of people, famous, not famous, uh, young, middle-aged, older, every ethnicity and religion and uh, gender you can imagine and, and, and socioeconomically diverse group. People were famous for good things. People were famous for something terrible. I asked all these different kinds of people to answer this question for themselves. And then I curated all of this. And then, so I opened the chapter with an essay curate other people's responses and then cap each chapter with my own sort of here are the common denominators 
And then I invite the reader to do the same, to, to answer for him or herself. Now, this does two things, okay? Clearly, it's intended to leave an ethical will, a non-material will, to bequeath to your loved ones, not your stuff, which frankly, they're not going to want much of anything. Anyway. We don't want it. We Nobody don't want wants it. I have no. all, you know, I had to get Nobody wants it. through it. Oh. Okay. That's why I call the chapter in the other book, Nobody Wants Your Crap. <laughs> they don't. We don't. No. Pain in the ass. Right. So what can you bequeath to your loved ones that they do want? Well, they want you. They want your wisdom. They want your guidance. They want your life lessons. They want your truth. So that's the first thing. Yes, you're creating a legacy letter. But you are also taking the opportunity to ask these very deep questions about your life and then look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I in alignment with the things I say I believe really matter? Or is it just talk? Is my life kabuki or is it the truth? Am I living my truth? And that's really what the book is about. Yeah. And, and why did I write it? Well, I wrote it because I published my ethical will to my children in The Beauty of What Remains. Yeah. And almost every podcast host, TV, morning talk show host, journalist, radio, almost everyone asked me about it, about it, saying, I never heard of this before. Yeah. This is such a powerful thing. Would you read the last paragraph for us, for the audience? And, and I started to think to myself, wow, we could start a movement of people creating these ethical wills for their loved ones and asking themselves whether or not their own lives now are in alignment. This great reevaluation, right, which is happening in America but it's happening in limited ways with where do I want to live and where do I want to work? Well, how about how do you want to live, right? And, and so this is really the point of the book and, and it's called For You When I Am Gone, 12 Essential Questions to Tell a Life Story. What is your truth? And that's how it all evolved. And um, I'm very hopeful that it will really provide some clarity and guidance for people now and for their loved ones when they're gone because that's what we need and miss i mean i know a little bit more about it than the average bear because i've had some access to seeing some of the questions and the chapter if people haven't already read the beauty of what remains i mean it is i i mean i've probably read it eight times because it's so easy to pick up and read but i also am so struck by the story of the evolution of it one of the questions I get asked by people is sort of like, well, how do you know what you want to do? How do you know what you want to be when you grow up? How do you know? And I don't know how to answer that question for anybody else, but I do know what the answer to the question feels like. And it feels like what you just described, which is whether we call it something divine, although I do, uh, and I actually usually feel it as a, like a temperature inside my body, I get cold and I sort of know that I'm in on the truth, but what you described was the organic space of teaching and guiding and supporting and helping other people with what they're struggling with. You put out into the world a gorgeous book that has what it has to offer. And then in conversation and connection with others, you learn of the next piece of need, which is, you know, I think maybe I relate to that because that's what that that's what pieces of service jobs of service actually do in their best possible way. Maybe yes. how many times as a therapist, have you said, tell me more about that? Yeah, exactly. Well, but, yeah. I think we, when we're anxious, you know, at a time of COVID when the world has felt terrifying, what people want is an answer, go to medical school. And then there's a trajectory that's planned out for them that's several years long. But I think the feeling in the dark of, you know, the word that keeps popping into my mind when you're talking about is the word integrity, because the, the way you're describing it is the way that I define it, which is that the way that I feel and the way that I behave line up together yes. and that people know when they're not living their integrity, they, yeah. they can't sleep. I don't mean you're robbing banks. I just mean you are outside the line 
of the, the meaningful life that you're trying to live. That's right. And, and we're all misaligned to some degree. A hundred percent. But when our professed values and lived values are drastically out of alignment, yeah. it is an enormously painful way to live. One hundred percent. You know, when other people tell you how proud they are of you and how amazing you are, but you are not proud of yourself. Yeah. That is a very painful dissonance. Yeah. That if you don't address. That's right. Leads to real, real trouble. And so you've got to ask yourself, do I really want what I want? Yeah. You know, it's such a powerful sentence. Do you really want what you want? Well, and the poor, the poor people who didn't stop to evaluate the culture that they came from and what they were told to want or, or supported to want. I mean, some of my clients who have the hardest time are ones who have actual talents and skills and things that don't align with like their heart space and their focus. I think that concept of a midlife crisis, which, you know, I'm headed towards 50 and I've been joking, like I'm having a midlife crisis. I love my job and I love my work, but it does have to pivot a bit in order for it not to drown me, I think is the word that it feels like can happen is that I can. And you have to reckon, look, I think for men and for women, for different reasons, midlife is also a reckoning with loss. That's right. And that's painful and sad, you know, and you want to fill that vacuum with something and you're not sure what, you know, for, I found, you know, I, I have in my office something because you've read my books, you know, I call the, the couch of tears. Yes. <laughs> and I would say that people in midlife are mostly soaking my couch with tears because of loss. They can't quite articulate and for women it's often an empty nest and menopause yeah now what is my purpose yeah and for men it's often you know this sense of finitude this sense of i'm on the back nine and i didn't really enjoy the front nine very much I don't, I don't want to bogey the back nine you know, until right. I'm not left. And, and, you know, I'm, I'm losing time. The conversation that I've been having with people is a midlife crisis can be such a great thing. If I think can. of it as an opportunity, right? I literally remember going to my psychiatrist. I only started seeing a psychiatrist when I was 55 years old. It started out. I thought because I was depressed after a very fatal car crash mm. and uh, spinal surgery and opioids and chronic pain. And I thought, I gotta, I'm depressed. I can't get off the couch. I need help. I thought that was the reason I was going, right? But I realized it was so much more. And I remember I walked into the therapist's office And I said, he said, well, tell me why you're here. And I said, well, I feel like I'm headed for a midlife crisis and I'd like it to be a midlife opportunity. I said, I had this feeling my life is going to go one of two ways now. Yeah. And I sure don't want it to go the wrong direction. And it could because I was bitter and I was depressed and I was anxious and, and I knew I needed help. And it goes back to that feeling of community. One of my doctors called me just to see how I was doing post-surgery. And I explained how I was feeling. He said, well, you're depressed. Yeah. You, you need help. And he gave it a name. And, and why was he calling me every day? Because he wasn't just my doctor. He was my friend. Yeah. And it was this community that then rallied around me. And by the way, my incredible life yeah so i these i i really think that midlife is as much about loss as it is about anything else and i don't think i've ever felt well i maybe it's in the top three 
when we dropped our oldest child off at his freshman dorm. Oh my God. Right. It was crushing. Yeah. I sobbed on the way to the airport. I believe it. We all did. My wife, our young young daughter and, and I, we were, it was totally quiet. And then after about 10 minutes, I said, this is awful. And we all just started sobbing. (laughs) So loss is the great opportunity. That's right. I think right now, every conversation that we're having that has a component to it that is about what am I going to do next? What am I going to be next? How am I going to live next? Is, is a grief and loss conversation. And I think part of what your book is going to offer us is a scaffolding on how to have those conversations. Yes. Because you say grief and loss. I mean, I've had a, I've been marketing people like, listen, you got to take the word grief out of your thing. You've got to, we still have a long way to sort of go around the concept of saying grief and loss is a natural part of life. But I, I mean, the chapter in your book, when I understood that this new book was the extension of that chapter, feels like a complete gift to it. I really hope, look, um, I'll never out earn the advance. So what I'm about to say has nothing to do with money. It really doesn't. Right. I really hope this book results in hundreds of thousands of people. Oh, I know you do. I know you do. Creating this written legacy and personal litmus test. Yeah. Because it, it changes your life. Yeah. It really does. I, be, I mean, I believe it. And I, and again, I think when you are in a life of service, the idea that you may have through conversation and your own development and your own decades in the work come across something that is actually tangibly helpful to someone else is a gift to yourself and your own legacy and to everyone else. Those kinds of insights are really rare and really precious. And, you know, I'm I'm thinking this idea of loss. I remember, so they're reissuing my very first book, which I wrote almost 30 years ago. Oh, wow. It was like early Steve Leader, you know? In it, there's an essay called All Life is Separation. I think in a sense, that is sort of the um, embryonic stage of everything I'm writing and thinking about. Yeah, I bet I I can see that. As someone trained in attachment, that makes perfect sense. Listen, I have to let you go. I never want to end this conversation. I am so really honored and grateful and feel like I've, you know, had my own like therapy slash sermon. I have so many things that I wrote down while we were talking and I deeply hope we can stay connected. Stay in touch. And I want to know that you helped me today. Oh, that's okay. You really have. I've never fully appreciated the physicality of connection in the yeah. ways in which you've articulated it today. Oh, that's and, so kind. And that, that's really helpful to me. It has so much of this conversation been, and I appreciate what you're doing. Keep it up. Thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you. Thank you're you welcome. for this. It was Bye. such an honor. Take good care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.